Welcome to the Mental Models Podcast. I'm George Baxter, and I'm a hedge fund manager for SaberPoint Capital Management. I'm Dan Krawczyk. I'm a neuroscientist and professor at the University of Texas at Dallas. And together we explore mental models. That is how we view the world and what the world gives us for feedback. It's not a brain in a jar. That's the gist. For today's discussion, we're going to focus in on confirmation bias, which is probably one of the more important biases and most pervasive that we see in the world of investing. It has its roots in really the process of of building mental models. So every time we start to build an impression of the world and gather more and more information, we assemble that into some type of theory and we begin to predict what will happen next. This is obviously true in investing, but it's true all over our lives. The challenge is once we have started to construct that theory, we can start to move toward basically trying to support the theory instead of having a balanced opinion. So we start to get closed-minded at a certain point, and then we have a very hard time seeing evidence that runs counter to what our current thinking is. It's certainly something that we see all the time in our shop. Dan, I think there's been a lot of scientific research that's been done on this particular bias. Can you give us a little bit of color regarding that? There's a really fun experiment from about 50 years ago. Peter Wason is one of of the famous deductive reasoning researchers. And Wason was a British psychologist. He has a reputation as being a little bit of a trickster. And so he had this simple experiment where he would give people a number sequence and he wanted people to discern what a rule was that it fits. So he would give them two, four, and eight, and that would be the first sequence, or two, four, six. And you would start to zero in, okay, it's even numbers. Or I can take the first two and add it to get the third. And he would allow them to ask questions, you know, in a sense, building up their theory as to what the number scheme was. And then at a certain point, it was like the game of Clue, where you would reveal what you thought the rule. rule was. And so they would articulate these careful theories about intricate interrelationships of the numbers. The reality of Wason's rule is any ascending number sequence would have worked. People were terrible at this, and they rarely understood that to be the rule. And what was missing is they would kind of overthink the problem. They would start to zero in on too specific of an example, and thereby missing the opportunity to actually break their current theory. And this speaks to the creation of these narratives. We sort of seek support. And we have to do that initially in order to get an impression going. But somewhere along the line, we just check out on that ability to to make the reverse case seem real. And we drift toward simply confirming the information we believe to be the case. We've all been trained to think in a deductive manner, where typically we start with some sort of a theory, and then we gather evidence that is going to show that that theory is correct or incorrect. The reality is, is most of the time, we make our mind up about the truth, and then we see facts to support that notion. And a lot of business forces sort of incentivize that idea, right? So so there's this term scientifically proven, which I've heard business people say, but you'll never really hear a practicing scientist say this because you can never really prove a hypothesis. You can simply support it. What good science is about is actually breaking one's hypothesis. You want to be able to falsify your current position because just having more support, while it strengthens your current theory, what you want to really be able to do is modify the theory fundamentally. And you can only do that by finding a clear error that couldn't be the case with your current narrative. So this is one of those challenging positions. It's awkward to do this. We don't naturally want to disagree with ourselves. We have a hard time sort of seeing around however we've started to color the environment. And we naturally move toward that. So um, this is just one of those very challenging
challenging problems that you have to put into place practices to avoid. In an ideal world as investors, it would be nice for us to be inductive thinkers instead of deductive thinkers, where we take a look at all the data and all of the evidence, and then we try to discern a pattern after we've thoroughly reviewed the evidence and come up with some sort of a theory. One of the problems, of course, with that particular dynamic is that in investing, the data is always fluid and changing. So once you've gone and come up with a theory, chances are you're then going to try to match incremental evidence to be consistent with that theory and discard that evidence that is not consistent with the theory. That's the tendency. And this also occurs in intelligence analysis. So I had a former PhD student of mine, a colleague now, Don Kretz, who was formerly a marine intelligence analyst. And he was faced with that same information overload sort of problem that you have in investing where there's all kinds of incoming information and you're trying to make sense of it. And Don had a great quote. The process was like assembling a puzzle, but you don't have the box top to see what the picture is. And furthermore, there were pieces of other puzzles scattered in amongst the pieces. So it's this active exercise of trying to weed out certain, you know, dead end leads or things that won't end up fitting the picture and create the picture. And so it does require this vigilance of keeping tabs, so to speak, on supportive information versus information that refutes your thesis. Also, there's an interesting neuroscience uh, explanation that goes with confirmation bias. This was very clever work by Brad Dahl and his colleagues at Yale some years back. They did a study where they looked at people's genotyping. There's this uh, one gene that uh, basically breaks down dopamine in the brain. And uh, dopamine is important for our working memories, how we maintain information and how we are robust against distraction. There's an interesting allele here, the Valmet allele, which a minority of people have in society. If you have the Valmet allele, I always thought you were lucky because you had slightly higher working memory, like you could maintain a representation longer, and that's linked to your frontal lobes and their efficiency. Now, if you have the other allele, which is the Val-Val allele, dopamine will break down faster in your brain, so you're a little more distractible. Now, it turns out um, Dahl and his colleagues had kind of a, a learning task in which there were two choices. One had better support, and you should make that choice. The other one worked some of the time, but was less good, and they would misinform people as to which one was the right button. So uh, you'd be told sort of the better button is actually the one that doesn't work out. If you had the Valmet allele where you had more robust working memory, you persisted longer in the erroneous belief. So this points to that sort of the fact that confirmation bias is such a core part of our cognitive architecture that people who have this sort of cognitive advantage, right, they can maintain information longer, they can actually fall into this trap even more because of that ability. So it is a minefield with respect to how it is we deal with all this information. Uh, You see it not just in investing, and you also see it in the law. There was a uh, old notion that uh, often it was the perspective of the judge that uh, would typically predominate uh, the outcome of the case. If the judge had a theory about what the actual circumstances were, then everything else would simply be arguments that were adopted by the court to be able to supplement that theory and everything else is rejected. So it's kind of like a Rorschach test to some degree. We see this data, we see what we want to see in it, and then we continue to persist uh, with that initial vision. There are some steps that we'll get into in a bit that we can do to mitigate that factor, but you have to know 
that it's almost always present. That's a first step toward remedies to confirmation bias is, is some awareness that this happens. We can't know everything, and there's there's always a, another set of information in the world. And this gets more and more difficult as you move into these uncertain, decision under uncertainty kind of problems, such as investing, or such as, as the law. This is another case where we can't know everything that would have happened in the past or or even project what someone's going to do in the future if you're considering someone's uh, sentencing, for example. Um, So some awareness that there must be information out there that uh, we don't personally have access to is a good first step toward staying open-minded longer. And we also want to weigh all of this recognition of uncertainty with the fact that if we want to be able to invest, we we still have to be able to act. Starting from the position that we know that there is a great deal of uncertainty, that there is a great deal of risk of unfavorable outcomes that can uh, take place, that doesn't mean that there are not well-reasoned bets that can be made. There are different ways that we can also mitigate this confirmation bias. Uh, In the legal system, one remedy they try to implement, which is not often seen in the investment arena, is an adversarial process where one party takes a particular view and then another party takes a contrary view and then they provide their arguments. The ultimate arbiter or decision maker then is a third party that weighs the various arguments and comes to a conclusion. That seems like a good practice. And uh, we also think of such people as being a devil's advocate, right? That they're uh, going to point out the other side of the case. Um, what's risky about devil's advocates is we they're kind of pesky, right? We, we kind of don't like them, and especially if they're of minority opinion, they can sort of get uh, overwhelmed. We talked about group biases in one of the other podcasts. One of the difficulties is groups like to seek consensus. And so the devil's advocate can sometimes be um, not paid attention to. There's an even greater bias that comes with that. Uh, it's been called a variety of things over the years. I like the term idea inoculation. So if I have a particular idea and I try to convince you of it and you're resistant, you know, I'm being a devil's advocate and I don't convince you, you will actually be more confident that that's not relevant. Because you've gone through the exercise of dealing with my counterargument, and you feel like you've overcome it, and so now you feel even more immune to that sort of problem. So this this kind of phenomenon takes place in the public sphere all the time with uh, political positions, for example. If you fail to convince someone initially, chances are you may have lost them, and they may be more hardened in their, in their counterbelief. So devil's advocacy has to be done Again, it has to be approached with an open mindset. A good way to try to address one of those issues is to not think in terms of absolutes, where there's two different arguments, one is right and one is wrong. The other way to think of it is there are relevant factors, and we can agree upon relevant factors, or maybe we don't, but we know that there's potential factors that could affect the outcome of a particular situation that we're trying to predict. And then we can try to think of them probabilistically as opposed to in a binary, absolute manner. That's something that we've talked about before in some prior podcasts. I think it's important to keep that within your process so that you're open-minded enough to recognize a situation where an initial factor that you considered but thought was either unlikely or not relevant 
becomes predominant and you're able to change your thinking. That's right. And that that's uh, open-minded, active intake of, of information. Familiarity has a lot to do with all this also is kind of an individual difference for how we express confirmation bias. So from the uh, research literature, it tends to be that people have a lot of trouble with the deductive case in which you have the negative information, that they fail to break the rule. They will usually seek to confirm the rule. That seems to just be generally easier. The exception being when uh, experimental materials are created that are familiar to the, the person. So uh, a, a good example I can think of is there was, a again, a Peter Wason idea was this uh, sort of letter uh, number relationships. People were terrible at that because it didn't make any intuitive sense to them to find numerical odds, evens kind of relationships to vowels and consonants. Some later researchers came along and used Wason's deductive task with a drinking age problem. So you're presented with people at a bar scenario where they're either drinking a beer or a soda, and they're either obviously of age or underage. In that familiar case, people break the rule very easily. They look for the underage drinker. So that's a case. I think if we can take a lesson into our lives from that, if you become more familiar with the context, uh, it will likely enhance your deductive reasoning because you're familiar with those cases where you could have exceptions. So I think studying up on similar companies or similar outcomes from the past, if you can draw an analogy, that can be very informative. That, that can be. One of the other issues that you also have to confront is the fact that often our narratives can be quite fluid. You know, typically this is uh, known as thesis drift, where you come up with an initial narrative, you think very favorably about the prospects for an issue that you're looking at, or negatively if you're short, and then new developments occur and that narrative shifts. It's very dangerous ground to be on. One way that we've found that you can overcome that is to be very meticulous about recording your thoughts in the investment process. That way, you can go back and, th- and look at what you were thinking initially and see if the story has changed from the thinking that you have currently. And it may make sense not just to describe your thoughts in words, but maybe to try to quantify some of those thoughts and probabilities, as you mentioned earlier, uh, just because words don't always do it justice, right? Because we're filtering it through language, we can sometimes use, uh, you know, disc- sometimes adjectives will sort of fail to capture our real thoughts at the time. So again, uh, staying open-minded, trying to think in terms of, of numbers uh, would give you maybe more insight as you look back at sort of your journaling, you know, to just try to calibrate your mindset at that time. We try to crystallize that at the end of the in- investment research process. We do keep a journal of the various information that we collect along the way and what the narrative is. But then at the end of our research, after we've gone through the investment committee, we'll go and write what we call a pre-mortem. And the pre-mortem is supposed to state what the basis of the investment is, what we think the probability of various factors coming to fruition are, and then if the investment goes wrong, what were the risks or what are the risks that we're facing and what we think the probability of those risks coming to fruition are. Now, over time, as new data arrives and comes in, we may adjust those probabilities. And then once an investment has been closed out, 
we'll go and write a postmortem. And we try to analyze what actually occurred and see if that was captured within the realm of our premortem. Now, does that cause a bias in and of itself? When you do the premortem, you fundamentally have to make some decisions, which uh, we mentioned earlier. Um, so I wonder, do you run the risk of, of sort of underselling the counter narrative or where it could go wrong in favor of we, we want to do something here? And so I, I just wonder if that, if that has its own problems some of the time, where if it doesn't work out, was it the, was it the same sort of pre-mortem uh, reverse case, or, or, or was it some monkey wrench that came in that you couldn't have possibly seen? Uh, and the reason I say that is just, I think your pre-mortem is only as good as insofar as it aligns with your post-mortem. Otherwise, sort of fate seems to have intervened, right? Well, sometimes we, what you're using the post-mortem for is, is a learning exercise. And it's a recognition that sometimes we don't capture every issue that arises over time. Like, for instance, even a successful investment, if you end up having a positive outcome, and but that outcome was the result of something that you never anticipated, and you were actually wrong with, this, with respect to some of your premises, you should be able to see that when you're coming to the postmortem. To overcome the issue of having the bias of actually investing or making a decision early on in the process, it's good to basically look at it as having the ultimate goal as doing the research and understanding the basis, not having the ultimate goal of, I'm going to do this work because I want to make this investment. What we try to do is we'll do the work on individual securities that we analyze, and we think of it as kind of an arrow in a quiver. At a certain price, under certain circumstances, this would be desirable. That may not be today. It could be later. And so if you shift the objective, and the objective is more to actually do the work and try to come to an understanding, then it can somewhat mitigate the necessity or desire to go and come up with confirmatory evidence to prove one side or the other. And it seems like the pre- and post-mortem can be supplemented by sort of intervening times as well, right? So journaling on some decisions that were made, you know, from not through the just the beginning and end of the physician's life, but sort of in the middle. And, and that's important because you could then trace where your thinking may have shifted at, at a certain time. In a sense, you'd have a narrative of how your mental model was adjusted over time, uh, which would then help you, I think, in your postmortem, like to fill in some of those gaps as to so you can learn from experience. Absolutely. And we do try to think of, in terms of probabilities, we know they're not precise, but we'll try to adjust probabilities as new facts arise that are relevant to various factors. And so you'll have your premortem, the initial one, but then perhaps over time, you'll change the probabilities and record those at those different times. And then you can assess that whole process when you close the position. And this is uh, this goes beyond investing. So it's just other walks of life tell us that this can also have value, the journaling idea. If you think about scientific journaling, um, like Leonardo da Vinci has remarkable notes and careful diagrams and people keep diaries, right? And they do so because uh, it sort of helps you to 
in a sense, keep your thoughts balanced, right? You're doing, you're forcing yourself to do some reflection, some mental work. So you're not just kind of keeping the blinders on inadvertently and plunging forward. We ter- use the term mental speed bump sometimes to check your biases. You, a speed bump insofar as it doesn't, it's not a radical turn in the road. It's just merely a, uh, a way to slow down and reflect and take in more uh, the information. So I think journaling counts as one of those mental speed bumps, which makes it a pretty good candidate. Uh, you've also talked about alternative universes and kind of an alternative universe theory. As we wrap up, do you want to say some words about that? Oh, it's just important to think that different changes that occur within the world, factors that we can't necessarily define, can result in various outcomes. And so under one set of circumstances, you can have a successful investment. Under, under another set of circumstances uh, where things cut in a way that are unfavorable, it can be unsuccessful. And you can think of multiple different scenarios that could have different results, some favorable, some unfavorable. You know, one thing to keep in mind as all of these pictures develop, you know, you continue to get new puzzle pieces. Some of them are relevant. Some of them are not. Some of them are more important than others and they have more impact. But as you get those new pieces, you're also not confined to the position at the size that was appropriate given the probability distribution and magnitude of outcomes that you initially perceived. You can either increase the position if it looks more likely to be successful or decrease it if it looks like there's more uncertainty or there's more risk that's coming into the picture. So that is almost like a lever that you can move, uh, which fits more with the probability idea rather than thinking in absolute certainty or, or lack of certainty. I'm reminded of the hindsight bias, which has been published on, written on extensively by Baruch Fischoff, who is a decision psychologist. And what the hindsight bias is fundamentally about is this idea that uh, once something has happened, we should have seen it all along. And that that's, of course, a misrepresentation. So you can have a well-calibrated, well-thought-out mental model, and, you know, just some freak occurrence happens, and there's no way you could have seen it or factored it into your thinking. So those odd occurrences tend to feel more probable than they would have looked to us um, in the course of our, our reasoning, even when we're, you know, making the best go of it. So luck has an additional factor in all of this, and so uh, you don't want to overinterpret your postmortem because if there was just some curveball feature that you'd never have been able to anticipate, you weren't probably wrong in your analysis. Absolutely. It's important not to mistake a bad outcome with a bad process. You know, sometimes you're playing blackjack and, you know, you have 18. Just because you choose not to take a hit, the next card that comes off the deck is actually a three and then the dealer flips 20, doesn't mean the decision not to take a hit was wrong. So when you're doing your postmortem, you do have to be careful not to read too much into a bad outcome. Sometimes the process is fine, the decision-making was good and well and very sound, but you just ended up on the wrong side of the probabilities. Okay, so in this episode, we've talked about confirmation bias, uh, the fact that we uh, move toward making sense of situations, and as we do so, we become increasingly blinded to alternative cases. And uh, we've talked about some of the science behind this. 
Uh, we've talked about the fact that just some awareness of this is a good first step towards staying open-minded. George has advocated for things like devil's advocacy and thinking like a lawyer, which is uh, certainly helpful. Uh, we talked about journaling and being aware that um, unlucky things can sometimes happen. So be careful of the lessons you take from your analytic work. Uh, sometimes you uh, can either learn from your mistakes or just realize that wasn't actually a mistake. And so we encourage you to think deeply and uh, frequently about uh, your your positions and self-reflection and reflection about the evidence uh, is certainly a good practice. That sounds good, Dan. I think that wraps it up. All right. Let's go play some cards. Thank you for spending your time listening to the Mental Models Podcast. Content matters because your brain does not exist in a jar. Please subscribe. Visit mentalmodelspodcast.com for updates on Dan and George's upcoming book release titled Understanding Behavioral Bias, A Guide to Improving Financial Decision Making. Also available on mentalmodelspodcast.com are show notes, book reviews, and upcoming behavioral finance seminars with Dan and George. The Mental Models Podcast can be found on SoundCloud, iTunes, iHeartRadio, and Twitter. Please subscribe, and thank you for listening.